on this episode of The Kinked Wire. Uh, without being able to articulate what that value is, uh, I, I'm sure many IRs across the country can relate to the struggle uh, that might ensue when, when you're trying to, you know you're valuable, but you have trouble quantifying it and articulating it. Welcome to The Kinked Wire, the new podcast for SIR's IR Quarterly Magazine. You can learn more at our website, sirweb.org IRQ. Last month, SIR Foundation hosted a research consensus panel on the value of IR, led by Dr. Matt Hawkins. Recently, Kinked Wire hosts Lauren Krakoff and Jamin Shaw spoke with Matt about measuring value, and with SIR's coding consultant, Stephanie Dybel, about the tools IRs can use to get reimbursed appropriately. Thanks both to Stephanie and Matt for joining us. We really do appreciate it. And, and I think, you know, couldn't really have come up with a better topic for uh, this day and age than value and reimbursement and, and coding and, and really the value of IR. I know that that's something that's circulating in and in really in a lot of circles now. And we all know uh, dealing with MIPS, value is everywhere we go. So I think just for some of our listeners who may not have quite as much information, just give us, if you don't mind, a little bit of background on the RCP and and why you think that uh, the RCP and value makes sense now. The RCP has probably been in the works for a while. I, I certainly think when the sustainable growth rate was kind of destroyed, if you will, in 2015 and replaced with the macro legislation, part of which was the MIPS, Merit-Based Incentive Payment System, and the Quality Payment Program, people started talking about value. And of course, at that time, Secretary Burwell set some pretty you know, pretty lofty goals of increasing the percentage of reimbursement across the United States and from CMS that is coming from value-based payments rather than transactional fee-for-service. The SIR hosted a, a full-day summit on this topic and value at uh, the SIR meeting in Washington, D.C. Uh, I believe that was back in maybe 2017. So it's, the topic's been out there. I think the challenge for IR in particular is proving that value not so much to, to CMS and, and to the, the federal government, but rather to really healthcare administrators, you know, C-suite executives, academic department chairs, uh, because when we start having conversations about how, how we save the hospital money, uh, why maybe we need more faculty, uh, additional advanced practice providers, and maybe facilities, uh, without being able to articulate what that value is, uh, I, I'm sure many IRs across the country can relate to the struggle uh, that might ensue when, when you're trying to, you know you're valuable, but you have trouble quantifying it and articulating it. You know, right. I think you've hit a very popular topic right now. I mean, even SIR Connect is talking about how do we define our value and how do we go about doing that to other departments, administrators, like you mentioned. And I face that, you know, on a daily basis as well. Um, has the RCP come up with ideas that might be helpful to the general population of IR people to kind of go out there and advocate for themselves and demonstrate their value? Yeah, I mean, I think some good things came out of the RCP, and certainly the RCP really got into the nitty-gritty of why value is particularly challenging, and I think probably importantly for IRs everywhere, I think it's important to recognize that value as defined by different stakeholders is different to each one, and in fact, sometimes they're conflicting. Uh, so, for example, if you look at how IR can be valuable to our payers, uh, you know, payers really just care about reimbursement. That's that's what their cost is. And if, if value is quality over cost, we know how difficult quality is, but cost to a payer uh, is purely what the reimbursement is set by, um, and that is it. That's 
whatever they negotiate for proprietary contracts with hospitals or whatever CMS telling them to pay for uh, Medicare patients if they're a contractor. And if you compare that to how we provide value to our patients, for example, uh, perhaps quicker recovery time, faster time back to work, maybe uh, that don't need to have as much family around to help them with activities of daily living after procedures. You know, to be really frank, payers don't care about that. So while that might be valuable to patients, that is not valuable to a payer if the cost of the procedure, perhaps the one-time reimbursement, is different. And the similar stories hold true if you look at what is valuable to a hospital administrator. If you ask most hospital administrators, many of them, and particularly the um, uh, one of them that was at the RCP, said the best way that IR can provide value to a hospital is to decrease length of stay, and maybe that's to accelerate central venous access. So very, very different where a, a payer may not care about getting central venous access and getting them out the door, depending on what stage in the uh, the hospital stay or how much of the DRG has been spent. Uh, and okay. the fourth the fourth stakeholder uh, beyond the hospitals, the insurance payers, and then the patients, the fourth stakeholder is mixed IRDR groups. Um, there's a big, you know, there's a lot of groups that are struggling with how how do IRs provide value to a traditional practice that has really only valued the professional RVU and you might spend 60 minutes placing a pick line in a patient with terrible peripheral venous access and get paid 1.7 RVUs and a non-con head CT which really is the chest x-ray of neuroradiologists pays exactly half of that 0.85 RVUs and it's amazing how many non-contrast head CTs you could read in that 60 minutes how do we provide value to an organization that has traditionally only valued the professional RVU uh, so very different definitions of value between our stakeholders. I, I think those are some really excellent spot-on points and, and raises so many other questions um, for me, at least. I mean, I've, I'm someone who has uh, at least a couple toes in the administrative arena. And I think, I mean, I think it depends uh, perhaps upon where the hospital administrator, where the administrator's background is. You know, if you've got administrators who are physicians or maybe even IRs, it might be far easier to demonstrate value, but I think there are so few folks like that that it's probably a problem. So I was going to get to something you suggested. What was the panel composed of besides IR? You mentioned that there was a administrator. I was actually very proud. We had a lot of non-interventional radiologists there. So we okay. had a CEO of a private mixed IRDR group. Uh, to represent that stakeholder. Uh, we had uh, executive vice president of uh, one of the large Boston area hospital systems, uh, who is a surgeon by training and chief quality officer of that particular hospital system. Uh, we had former medical director of Blue Cross and Blue Shield and now medical director of Change Healthcare. Uh, we also uh, had a, a hepatobiliary surgeon who is uh, lead in the oncology surgical program uh, at a hospital system here in Atlanta. Uh, and then we also had a health economist uh, from Georgia Tech who was able to provide that perspective, you know, and you mix that in uh, with other people well known to us. Uh, Rich Duzak was there, John Kaufman was there, Jeremy Durack and Ray Liu. Uh, you mix the, those people in with the others that I mentioned. It made for a very robust discussion around this topic. That's great. And particularly, I think, involving, as you said, you know, the administrator's perspective, whatever their background might be, because uh, to an extent, that stakeholder group carries some weight. 
Yeah, and it was very interesting to hear the, the perspective, and the, the, you alluded to it. There's different types of administrators. So there are administrators that view IR purely as a support service. So we are there to help run the inpatient service and do, quote, the chores. Um, you know, I call central venous access, biopsies, enteric access, abscess drains. That's fine. We all have to do our chores. There's nothing wrong with mm-hmm. that. <laughs> I think uh, the administrators that maybe have more of an IR background or radiology background also recognize the potential value of IRs that we can be a specialty that brings new patients into the system. That's a more common way that a lot of administrators think about value. That's why they think cardiologists are valuable and neurosurgeons are valuable, et cetera. Uh, so certainly how you communicate your value uh, can make a big impact. But regardless of where your background is, getting patients out of the hospital faster uh, and maybe decreasing central venous access uh, infections, so collapses, there's no question, no matter what system you're in and how your practice is set up, those are going to be viewed as valuable by hospital administrators. And really that became the initial goal out of the RCP, and that is to try and quantify what the impact is the quantitative value of getting a patient out of the hospital one day earlier uh, because of central venous access. And I know it sounds simple to say that, but studying that uh, is a little bit harder than it is to say. Well, that sounds like actually a, a big challenge. How do you, <laughs> how does the RCP foresee that data and research happening to figure out what the value is of that? Yeah, fortunately, we had a lot of help from our health economists, and then, of course, uh, Dr. Duzak, who has a long history at the Neiman Health Policy Institute. We were able to start digging into what data is available from claims data uh, and where might we have to turn for additional data that would be uh, more helpful. And so you could imagine a, a study where we look at Medicare claims across the United States and see how many patients were discharged on the day of or the day after central venous access placement. So you can start to boil down to what those patients look like and then possibly look at their hospital stays uh, and start figuring out how long their stays were and quantify based on the DRG that they were admitted for. Uh, That is a a rough, rough overview, but uh, suffice it to say that's that's sort of the approach. And if you can get down to that and begin to quantify, not at a single institution, but quantify over a, a broad geography, such as what the Medicare claims database does. You could see how you could start articulating value in a very different way. So, you know, I practice in a relatively large geography, even though it's in New Jersey. You know, both our hospitals span about 40, 50 miles apart. Um, mm-hmm. And I don't know if we have a similar or the same system set up along those hospitals I and mean, how we would go about doing that. Um, you think that's going to be a challenge in get, gathering this data and then trying to implement some sort of change to or, you know, to figure out what to do with that data after? Well, I mean, certainly we're going to have to see if we can even find it in claims data, to be entirely honest, because, you know, a lot of people think claims data can answer everything, but once you start digging in, oftentimes you can see how it does not. So this may have to end up involving some type of mixture of databases. It may require modeling and not just uh, pure evidence, but uh, I think if we can begin to show the value of IR and decreasing length of stay, once we have a model in place, whether that's for central venous access or something else, that becomes applicable then for things such as uh, abscess drains and other things that we do in hospitals. To take it a step further, the other area where we think we could be particularly valuable to hospitals is for shifting things to the outpatient setting rather than admitting patients for things such as replacing enteric tubes, GJ tubes that get pulled out 
or central venous access. Some patients are get admitted for things such as that and keeping it in the hospital outpatient setting uh, and keeping those beds open. Certainly, that's another way that if we can really get into this modeling, we can start to articulate value. Do you think, particularly with whatever you come up with, with you know, looking at the claims data, you know, that you can also shift some of this to one of the other stakeholders that you mentioned, the the traditional sort of DRIR group, where you know you may be able to say to the, the DRs, you know, that you, in in those groups that you can say. Look, you know, your your IR may have spent 60 minutes doing that complicated pick line, and you may have read however many RVUs instead. But during those 60 minutes, the IR helped really cement the relationship with the hospital for the entire group because uh, look at the length of stay reduction, you know, based on that. I mean, is that possible? Do you think as an argument? I know you haven't, you don't have the data yet, but. Yeah, we don't have the data. I, I think that's going to be a much more difficult quantifiable argument. What I yeah. what I do think you can, without any doubt, argue is that if you show this value on decreasing length of stay, decreasing collapses, preventing admissions by taking care of patients in the outpatient setting, uh, there is absolutely no doubt that IRs are going to be able to argue that they are key to maintaining their hospital contracts. Now, that is more of a qualitative narrative and not quantitative. Someday, perhaps, we could begin to quantify this. Mm. Um, But the quantification that you describe is obviously much more challenging. If we were to start quantifying our value to IRDR groups, what I would propose instead is that these mixed groups begin pursuing different types of contracts with their hospital, possibly joint ventures or some way to capture the technical revenue. Because the technical uh-huh. revenue is where interventional radiologists shine and have a major have major influence over more or less technical revenue for a hospital, particularly in the hospital outpatient setting. Yeah, I was just going to say that sounds like a great avenue for that, you know, particularly for for things like central lines and you know, the, you know, that kind of I don't know biopsy drainage, those kinds of what you described as chores, which I, I like that term a lot. I mean, I have to have you talk to my twelve year old son at some point as well. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. So you guys had the meeting at this point and have come up with a plan. So what's next, or what can you know the membership expect to hear next about this whole project? So the first thing that comes out of every RCP standard is is going to be a, a sort of a white paper, if you will. Uh, we're working on that right now, and you'll see that come out. But the the top three things that uh, this group prioritized as far as for roadmap moving forward, uh, one is studying what is the value of decreasing length of stay truly, and we're going to focus on central venous access, finding a way to quantify that. The second prioritization was what is the value of IR in preventing admissions. Again, dealing with some of these things where patients get admitted uh, that could be dealt with in an outpatient setting if staffed appropriately and had appropriate resources. And then the third priority is kind of more of an interesting one. And for folks that aren't deep in the weeds in this world, it might sound a little bit abstract, but we want to develop an IR CPT coding platform similar to what's out there called the NITOS classification. Uh, NITOS classification has classified every non-invasive diagnostic radiology code, and it's what the Neiman Health Policy Institute has based a lot of their research on. If we can develop that same type of a coding platform for IR, many of these types of studies and subsequent claims data studies, it accelerates everything in research if we can come up with that classification. So those are the top three priorities that the panel came up with coming out of the RCP. That's great. Thanks so much, Matt. Um, I, I wanted to just take a second to to shift gears a little bit, Stephanie. 
And I wonder if you could take a second to just give us a little bit more information about what your role has been at SIR. What my role has been um, as my background as an IR technologist that has kind of over the past 12 years grown in her role locally here at Freighter to the Medical College um, from a technologist into administrative role certainly at, at the start on the hospital side, but more recently on the, the physician side of the practice. But hopefully what I'm bringing to our teams and, and my volunteer experience is that perspective of the administrative side, but yet having that clinical experience. And, you know, it all started with a rock meeting a long time ago. And just um, from there, just recognizing that I kind of had this in-between um, place where I could take a little bit of burden off the physicians with my expertise and hopefully provide a different perspective that the physicians maybe wouldn't be seeing as a kind of administrative side of things. Like Matt was suggesting earlier, we were talking about, I think administrators who have the background that you describe is it's just so key. And you probably do find it easier to, to sort of get your point across and relate to people because of that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, um, again, locally here and then being able to take that back to SIR, it's just really a matter of being able to speak the clinical language and but be able to speak it on both sides. And and I think that's where I, I hopefully did bridge the gap here locally and then be able to bring that back to the, you know, the roles that I'm volunteering for within SIR and kind of the economics committee and a number of um, aspects. And certainly hearing everything that, you know, we've worked so hard at the RCP, which I wasn't obviously directly involved in, but hearing um, Dr. Hawkins recap, it is just really exciting because I just continue to obviously see the vision of um, where we are going forward and just certainly really excited to continue to help with that and provide that perspective. And you, correct me if I'm wrong, I mean, you you write the coding Q&A column? Yeah, that's um, actually, I took that over from Dr. Hawkins, um, uh, I guess a little over a year ago now. That's definitely one of the ways members can kind of start to get some of that information about um, coding and billing. Just a little taste of it, yes. At least my experience has been that coding and billing is this black box that nobody ever <laughs> speaks about in medical school. You don't learn about it in residency <laughs> or fellowship, but then you get out there in the real world and you know, with more and more people trying to open OBLs and kind of start their own new ventures, yeah. we don't learn a lot about it. Yeah, absolutely. And I think we're hearing that loud and clear, and we're trying really hard to kind of continue to, to build our tools from an SIR membership perspective. But we do an annual coding update webinar that's always available to members. And I think if I'm not mistaken, the, the date we have targeted for that is February 19th this year. So that's always a place where members can get the annual changes that are going to affect you in the upcoming year, um, which I know have tended to be somewhat dreaded recently, and some years are worse than others. Um, but that's always a place where you can hear what's coming up in the year's changes. Um, outside of that, we do publish an annual coding update that's always available to, to members. And, and we really look at that as it is a comprehensive guide. It's not um, just annual changes that's certainly highlighted and called out specifically in the coding update that we publish. But it really is a, a comprehensive guide to what should be, you know, the majority of CPT codes that are used in everybody's practice every day. Some highlights of that document are charge sheets. So depending on how your practice works, if there's any sort of charge sheet program within your practice, you can download those charge sheets that give you the ability to check the boxes of, of what you've done. Additionally, there's what we call our frequently asked questions. So kind of some real life scenarios and how would you code them and, and divide it out by uh, procedure type within the coding guide. So I think that's certainly the stuff that's available to members where you can start along with, as we mentioned, um, within the IR Quarterly Magazine, the coding Q&A column. 
about a year and a half ago with this practice, we were opening a new clinic and trying to really build our E&M billing um, and seeing patients on the outpatient side just to provide that kind of better care that Matt was talking about earlier. And there's a toolkit as well. Um, I don't know if you guys have seen it before. We had a role in developing it, but the E&M toolkit I found to be excellent. Yes, absolutely. Have you used it at all, Morin? I haven't. I, I actually didn't know about it. I wish I had. Yeah, it's a great resource. I, I'd highly recommend it. Great. There is that as well as a coding and reimbursement general toolkit. So there are a few other tools available on the SIR for our members as well. We like to ask this question of our guests where we give you the power in an imaginary world, unfortunately, to change one thing in healthcare. So I'd ask of each of you, I mean, perhaps starting with you, Stephanie, what one thing would you change in healthcare if you could? Sure, that's that's definitely a, a large topic question, but I, I think this that certainly I live day to day more than anything is just the administrative burden that comes with all of this. Mm. And while it's ubiquitous throughout healthcare, there's a lot of different ways you could take that. Obviously, I see it most commonly in the reimbursement world and the number of hoops you have to just jump through in order to get paid for a claim. And, and I think more than anything, that trickle down that I'm seeing of that administrative burden that has shifted positions and it's very painful, and obviously we need to practice evidence-based medicine and make sure we're, you know, doing the right thing for patients. But there's just, you know, there needs to be a better balance to all of this in order for patients to, mm. to get the care that they need and for people to work at the top of their license. I think that would be the thing that I would love to see <laughs> re- <laughs> changed. Well put, Matt. Yeah, I, if I could change one thing, I would eliminate or put past us or whatever term you want to use this very uncomfortable transition to value-based healthcare from transactional fee-for-service uh, reimbursement that's obsessed and um, completely focused on the professional RVU. I think we know what we do is valuable. I think we know what we do helps people. It helps healthcare systems. And yet we still feel like we have to uh, move very quickly and uh, do high volumes of whatever, whether it's procedures or, or interpreting images. And uh, again, we're in a very uncomfortable place, so I would eliminate that if I could change one thing right now in healthcare. You've been listening to The Kinked Wire. We thank our guests, Matt Hawkins and Stephanie Dybel, for their time. We thank you for listening. You can find more details about the 2020 coding update, which is free for SIR members, at surweb.org. Our co-hosts are Dr. Warren Krakoff and Dr. Jamin Shaw. Our sound engineer is Dr. Jason Fisher. We hope you've enjoyed this episode. If you have ideas on what you'd like to hear us cover or anything else you'd like to tell us, we want to hear from you. Drop us a line at irq at surweb.org.